Band sounds pretty good, huh? Yeah. Hey, uh, I brought this in just to remind us what we're talking about, okay? Another word for this is the grave. Let's pray. Lord God, I pray that you would cause us to preach your word, which is kind of a weird prayer when I think about what your word is. So maybe I should pray, word, would you cause us? <laughs> would you animate us? Would you make us your body this morning? Father, we pray this in Jesus' name through the power of your spirit. Amen. I, uh, I was going to play a video for you this morning and actually made it. And then I decided against it because I thought it just uh, seemed kind of mean. A short video of a famous TV preacher, in fact, probably the most famous TV preacher of my generation uh, consistently, um, prophesying that Trump would win the election. No doubt Trump will win the election. Then he went on to say some other things. So what are we supposed to do with that? Deuteronomy 18, 22. When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. That prophet has spoken it presumptuously. So should we stone that false prophet? Maybe not, because we live in the new covenant, not under the old covenant law, and maybe not, because you know it could still prove to be right. Maybe some lawsuit will go through and Trump will stay in office. But then according to this TV prophet, uh, with the chaos that breaks out here, then uh, kingdoms from the north will take the opportunity to invade Israel, and then God will supernaturally intervene, bring a time of peace, and then a meteor will hit the earth, fulfilling Ezekiel 28, Isaiah 2, and Matthew 24, tribulation and the return of Christ, all starting with your vote for the United States uh, president, the office of the president. What are we supposed to do with all of that? And what are you to do with the fact that just about half of all your neighbors just voted for the wrong candidate? <laughs> and of course, by that I mean the candidate that you did not vote for. I mean, maybe you voted for Biden and you're feeling some relief, but you know, you live in a country where still half of your neighbors voted for Trump. So you think to yourself, what am I gonna do? I'm surrounded by people that idolize a lying, narcissistic, serial, fornicating fascist who tortures immigrant children. Now, he did not market himself that way, but maybe you clicked on one YouTube video that led you to another YouTube video, and before long you could make a pretty good case for that characterization of, of Donald J. Trump. Or maybe you voted for Trump you're still hoping that, that he wins, but even if he did win, you'd, well, you'd be living in Colorado, where at least half of your neighbors voted for Biden. Three days and three nights, you suffered. You suffered a contested election in the belly of the beast, only to be barfed up on the shores of an America that had suddenly turned blue. So you think to yourself, what am I going to do? 
I'm surrounded by idiots who voted for a senile old liberal who's being manipulated by atheist left-wing communists that just play on people's heartstrings so they can rise to power, wreck the economy, abort babies, and outlaw the worship of Jesus. Now, that was never an exact campaign promise from Joe Biden, but you clicked on a YouTube video, led to another YouTube video, and now you can make a pretty good case for your description of Joseph Biden. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I think that means that the way is the truth. And so half of our country is thinking, how could half of our country vote for such a liar with such little regard for truth? And, and now, even as I say that, both halves assume that I'm talking about the other half and fill in the narrative with a different set of facts. Either lies about a porn star or lies about the deep state or lies about the deep state instead of lies about the porn star. The way is the truth and the way is the life. And so half of our country is thinking, how could half of our country vote for someone with so little regard for other people, for human life? And now, once again, both halves assume that we're talking about the other half and just fill in the narrative with a different set of facts, either about abortions or immigrants or poverty or, or some such thing. Well, maybe the way is the truth and the life, but the way doesn't belong to either party. And if you think the way does, you just nail them to a tree. Well, anyway, you get what I'm saying, right? No matter who, your vote, who, you, who you voted for, no matter who you voted for, you're stuck with the other half. As we said two weeks ago, and this sermon is really a continuation of, of two weeks ago, uh, the office of the president is the office of the babysitter. So it does not matter in the way that we're tempted to think that it matters who it is that fills that, that office. However, <laughs> your brothers and sisters do matter. You'll get a chance to switch babysitters every four years, but your brothers and sisters are yours forever and ever and ever, and half of them voted for the other guy. So what are you going to do about that? From the Republican side, I hear talk of civil war. Second Amendment right to bear arms. From the Democrat side, I hear stuff like, I'm moving to Canada, where everyone is polite. I'm moving to Canada after, after I smash a few windows and stone some prophets. So what are we to do? I think we are each to do what God told Jonah to do. I've been wanting to talk about Jonah for quite some time, and this week I just realized, hey, now's the time. Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, or, or literally preach regarding it. For their evil has come up before me. Literally, it has come before my face. Isn't that weird? The word came to Jonah, talked to Jonah, and has a face. You know, the walking, talking word of God with a face shows up in all these fascinating places in the Old Testament. Anyway, 1 verse 1. Now, the word of the Lord 
came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it, for their evil has come before my face. Now, if you voted for Trump, when you hear the word Nineveh, I want you to think of the bluest city in the bluest state in, in America. Think of, I don't know, what? San Francisco, California. Okay, that's what you're going to think of when you think of the word Nineveh. And if you voted for Biden, I want you to think of the reddest county, not, not a city, a county. Think of the reddest county and the reddest state in America, someplace between Houston and Dallas, Texas, with a whole lot of oil wells and pickup trucks. Jonah, says the Lord, arise and go to Nineveh, Jonah. Other than the book of Jonah itself, and uh, some statements uh, of Jesus in the New Testament. The only thing we really know about Jonah comes from 2 Kings 14.25, where we read that Jonah prophesied the expansion of Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel, during the reign of the uh, Israel, evil Israelite king Jeroboam II. At that time, to the, to the south of Israel, um, Israel would battle Judah, the southern Israelite kingdom of Judah, because remember Israel had split into two big partisan pieces by this time. And to the north, Israel would do battle with the Assyrians. Second Kings reveals that God let Israel expand for a time in spite of their evil king Jeroboam II because God felt sorry for the people of Israel because they had suffered so much. Well, it was Jonah that prophesied God's favor upon Israel, the, the northern kingdom, during that time. You see, I suspect that Jonah was a fiercely partisan prophet. By that I mean he enjoyed judging others out so he could judge his own tribe or his ten tribes in. He relished the loss of others, for he, he, he judged that their loss was his win, his party's win. He was a partisan prophet, maybe even a bit like some of ours. But with Jonah, what he had prophesied had come true. And Nineveh, Nineveh, Nineveh was the evil empire that Jonah just loved to hate. This picture is um, a, a wall panel from the palace of the king of Assyria. It was taken out of the ruins of the ancient city of, of Nineveh. Uh, Nineveh, you can still go there today. You can see the ruins. It's just across the Tigris River from modern-day Mosul, Iraq. So maybe you don't want to go there. But It was Assyria that finally conquered and dispersed the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 B.C., about 60 years after the word of the Lord came to, to Jonah. This panel depicts the conquest of a town named Lachish in in Judah, that's the southern kingdom, the conquest of Lachish about 21 years after the fall of Israel, the northern kingdom. The soldiers in this panel are pictured skinning their prisoners alive. Nineveh was infamous for her cruelty. And Nineveh was also infamous or famous for the worship of the pagan goddess Ishtar. Ishtar was also known as Nina, the river goddess whose emblem was a fish. The cuneiform ideogram for the city of Nineveh is a fish inside of a house. Nineveh was thought to be the house of, of Nina. 
This panel is currently housed at the British Museum. This is a picture of Susan and I at the British Museum about 14 years ago. We viewed the incredible artifacts of Nineveh and Assyria. In one room, Susan walked past this old stone idol and she heard this voice saying, my home, my home, my home, my home. I asked her where it was because I wanted to go back and take a picture, but she wouldn't tell me. She wanted me to just leave it alone. You know, Paul taught that when pagans serve idols, they really serve demons. In the ancient cultures of, of Scripture, the line between the idolatrous false god of a particular city and the king of that city is a really fuzzy line. The king was often viewed as like an incarnation of the god that the city happened to worship. Together, the king and the god were, in St. Paul's words, the principalities and powers, the world rulers of this present darkness, like created entities that, that had gone bad. I'm saying that the Assyrians were imprisoned to the idols they worshipped. So their cruelty was not simply their own. In Nineveh, they had quite literally been consumed by the goddess Nina. Nineveh was a place of great opulence, decadence, violence. And although it may have seemed rather enticing on the surface at first, it must have been hell once you had been consumed by the passions of the goddess. Jonah 1.1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it, for their evil has come before my face. But Jonah rose to flee to Canada, or I mean Tarshish, Tarshish, from the, from the face of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. Tarshish may be a place name, but it means something like the open sea. In other words, it's as far away from Nineveh as Jonah can possibly get. So he paid the fare and went down into the ship to go with them to Tarshish, away from the face of the Lord. So not only is Jonah running from Nineveh, Jonah's running from the face of the word of the Lord. It says Lord and word of the Lord, as if they were the same thing somehow, but he's running from the face of the word of the Lord. And, and now see, that's kind of surprising. Because Moses said, our Lord is a consuming fire. He's a devouring fire. And you would think Jonah wanted some firepower at this point. It's his breath, God's breath, like a stream of brimstone that sets Gehenna ablaze, according to Isaiah. Our God is the God who answers by fire, says Elijah. Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet, and like a hammer that breaks a rock in pieces. In the words of Isaiah, listen closely, the Lord will cause men to hear his voice with raging anger and consuming fire, the voice of the Lord, that's his word, will shatter Assyria. You understand that the word of God is the ultimate weapon. You would think that Jonah would be chomping at the bit to use it. Right, to call it down upon Nineveh like, like fire that fell on Sodom and Gomorrah. The word of God is the ultimate weapon, and this is the surprising thing. It is actually a, a he, a person. He's, he's the God-man, the commander of the Lord's army. There is no greater power, but it's a strange power. That means it's a holy power. 
You may remember that the God-man met Joshua. Remember in the Israelites as they were planning to conquer the, the promised land, and Joshua asked him, are you for us or for our enemies? Do you remember his answer? No. To either or question. No. But I'm the commander of the Lord's army. Now I have come. And Joshua falls down and worships. The Word of God is the ultimate weapon, and Jonah would love some kick-ass Syrian firepower, right? Yet Jonah had come to understand that this fire is holy. And now somehow, now somehow Jonah sees his face, and he flees. He flees toward Tarshish, the open sea. For the Hebrews, the sea was the abyss, the deep, the grave, the home of demons, the realm of Leviathan. It was Sheol. That's Hades in, in the Greek, often translated hell in English Bibles. Sheol is a place where people attempt, they attempt to hide from the fiery presence of the Word of God. But in the end, even Sheol is destroyed in a lake of fire that is divinity. Revelation 20.14 and 21.4, read it. Believe it. Well, to run from God is to hide in hell. And that's just what Jonah gets. Hell. Out on the sea, a great storm rises. But Jonah is fast asleep in the bottom of the boat. Now, that's wild, because if you're a follower of Jesus, that should sound vaguely familiar, right? Right? He's asleep in the bottom of the boat. The sailors finally wake him in a panic. Jonah ad admits that he's actually the reason for the storm. So as a last resort, the soldiers throw him overboard. They literally sacrifice him, a living sacrifice, and he descends into Sheol. And when he does, the sea ceases its raging. Whew. Jonah 1.17, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, Jonah sinks into the abyss, and he's swallowed by this great fish. In Aramaic, Anuna, prowling the deep, like Nina, the fish goddess. So running from God's call to go to the great Nineveh, he's swallowed by the great Nuna that looks like the great Nina. You know, when Jesus tells a story in the Gospel of Matthew, he uses the word katos, translated great fish, whale, or sea monster. The Greek version of the Old Testament, which Jesus would have read, uses the Greek word katos for, for the great fish in the Jonah story, and it also uses the word to translate the Hebrew word for leviathan. So the Jews were not thinking of cartoon whales in children's plays, in vacation Bible schools throughout North America, not, not the things that, that we think of. I, I borrowed this from Angie. So they weren't thinking about this. They were thinking about something more like, like, like this. Leviathan. They were thinking of the beast from the sea, just like in the Revelation. Remember? Remember that we spent a lot of time preaching about this beast last year when we studied the Revelation. It's one of the principalities and powers of this world. Well, on the third day, in the belly of the beast, in the depths of the sea, Jonah 2, verse 1, then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish. 
saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me out of the belly of Sheol. The King James reads like this. Out of the belly of hell I cried, and you heard my voice. If the word hell ever shows up in your Old Testament, is translating this Hebrew word sheol. And so you see, it obviously isn't what we've often been told that, that it is. In the Old Testament, basically, everyone goes to sheol. But it does not last forever without end. In, in the New Testament, we find out that there is an end to everything, including forever and sheol. It's not endless, but it does appear to be hopeless. Faithless, hopeless, and loveless. Job argues that he who goes down to Sheol does not come up. We just don't have that ability. The psalmist describes it as a place where none can remember God and none can give him praise. Solomon says there is no work, thought, knowledge, or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. <laughs> there is no work, thought, knowledge, or wisdom in Sheol. That, that would mean that there is no way, truth, and life in Sheol, no logos, no reason, no word in Sheol, or at least the awareness of the word in Sheol. In other words, no one believes in Sheol. No one believes in hell. Not that there is a hell, but no one believes who is in hell. That's what makes it hell. Hell is not believing. Hell is not trusting. It's the absence, it's the absence of, of faith. Without faith in the way, the truth, and the life, without faith in love, without faith in love, you're totally alone. That's hell. That's the belly of the beast. No one prays in the belly of the beast. But on the third day, a miracle happens in Sheol. Chapter 2, verse 1. Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you, you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me, all your waves, your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. And remember, that was Jonah's wish. He gets his wish, but now he doesn't like his wish, his, his will, his own way. Then I said, I'm driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. At the root of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. See, he's hopeless. And yet someone is hoping within him. Closed upon me forever, yet you brought up my life from the pit Oh, Lord, my God, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you in your holy temple. What or who is his holy temple? That's homework assignment. Into your holy temple, verse, verse 8. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Hasid, that's relentless love. Our God is relentless love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. 
In Hebrew, that word salvation, the feminine noun sounds like this, Yeshua. Hopefully you'll notice that it's basically how the name Jesus is pronounced in Hebrew and the Aramaic of, of Jesus' day. And hopefully you also remember that, that that name literally means God is salvation, Yahashua, shortened to Yeshua. And, and, and just to speak the name in faith is to sacrifice something else in hope. To say God is salvation is to sacrifice me is salvation. That is my faith in my own judgment, my own flesh, my own ego. You know, I think Jonah wanted to save Israel from Assyria in his own way and use the word of the Lord to do it. But the word of the Lord is the way and the truth and the life. The word of God is the judgment of God, our God who is love. The word of God in human flesh is Yeshua, the God-man, commander of God's army, strong arm of the Lord, the, the one who upholds all things with his word of power, the, the word that speaks the word. The, the word of God is, is Jesus. Jonah said the name of Jesus and Leviathan, Nina of the Ninevites, the great fish, just couldn't stomach the word. Verse 10, and the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. I, I'm guessing that the Lord spoke to the fish from inside of the fish, inside of Jonah, because how else could Jonah have ever muttered his prayer in the first place? How could he remember to give praise and speak the word where there is no remembrance, no praise, no wisdom, no word? You see, the word of God must have descended into the depths with Jonah, Origen, the church father. Sorry, I'm trying to make sure this doesn't make a sound pop back here. I'll see if I can tighten it or something. It's bumping on my shirt. Don't worry about it. Origen, the church father, taught that Christ is asleep in the soul of every man, the way Jesus slept on the boat in, on the sea in the gospel. So, so the word was in Jonah, ready to waken in the depths of the sea. Kind of like a seed that's waiting to awaken in the depths of the earth. It's right there in the Apostles' Creed. Jesus, the Word, descended into hell. Peter writes that he preached to the spirits in prison who did not obey in the days of Noah, those that were buried in the depths of the sea. In Ephesians, Paul writes, when he descended into the lower parts of the earth, he led a host of captives free. The gates of hell cannot prevail against him in his body, the church. The deity was hidden under the veil of our nature, wrote Gregory of Nyssa in the fourth century, that so as with ravenous fish, the hook of the deity might be gulped down along with the bait of flesh, and thus life being introduced into the house of death and light shining in darkness, that which is diametrically opposed to the light and the life might vanish, or perhaps that thing might barf up the light and the life that had descended into the darkness and the death. In other words, hell barfed. The great fish barfed, or you could translate it spewed. It spewed Jonah onto the dry land, or perhaps we could say the beast birthed Jonah onto the dry land, because now it really gets well. The Hebrew word translated belly in chapter 2, verse 1, the belly of the fish, is more often translated womb. 
And that's the Greek word that Jesus uses when he tells the story in Matthew 12. Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the Kulia, the womb of the Ketus, the sea beast, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Isaiah prophesied, the earth will give birth to the dead. So are you getting this? Sheol, or Hades, that is the outer darkness where men weep and gnash their teeth. Hell, the belly of the beast, the heart of this earth is like a womb. And God uses it to give birth to something. You see, the Jonah that gets barfed up onto the beach is not the same as the partisan prophet who once rejoiced in the thought of the other destruction of his brothers and sisters in Nineveh. The new Jonah has faith in grace, and our God is grace. Faith in grace in Jonah is the word of God in Jonah. He has faith. Now listen, it, it may only be the size of a mustard seed, and that's enough. God overthrows Nineveh, but not with the fire that Jonah once craved, but with the preaching of his word through Jonah. The word that is a hammer and breaks the rock in pieces, burns the flesh of man like a fire, because it is fire. But as we'll see, Jonah still struggles, like we all struggle. Even though he was in bondage to Nina in the depths of the sea, he struggles to have compassion on the Ninevites in bondage to Nina in Nineveh. And God says to him, Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, Jonah, in which there are 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and much cattle? He even cares about the cows. And we'll talk more about all of this next week because there's too much in this story for one sermon. We'll talk about the rest of the story next week. But chapter 4, verse 2, we find out why it was that Jonah ran from the face of the word of the Lord in the first place. Jonah 4, 2. Jonah prays, O Lord, I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in hesed, steadfast love, relentless love, and relenting from disaster or evil. You see, Jonah knew that the word of God was all-powerful, but when he saw his face, he must have realized he is also relentless love. No, I'm not saying that it looked just like this, a good-looking white Anglo-Saxon in a Hollywood movie, but it did look something like this. The face of the word of God nailed to a tree in a garden consumed by hell. About 13 years ago, I saw this movie that just about ripped my heart right out of my, my chest. Afterwards, I just literally couldn't stop weeping. We went out to dinner and I just, I couldn't stop because I knew that it was the story of me and you and Jonah and Jesus. Movies titled The Three Burials of Melchiodus Estrada. My brother-in-law's last name is Estrada. My son-in-law's last name is Estrada. 
My grandchildren will be named Estrada. Melchiades supposedly comes from the Hebrew or the Portuguese through, uh, it's, it, it, Hebrew through Spanish or, or, or Portuguese, comes from the Hebrew by way of Spanish, and, and it means Yahweh is my God. Well, Melchiades Estrada, Estrada, which means the way, Melchiades Estrada is a poor Mexican shepherd who gets gunned down by a young American border guard who accidentally thinks Melchiades is a threat to our nation. Now, there are threats to our nation. He accidentally thinks Melchiades is, is one of those. The border guard is an insecure young man into porn and rough sex with his new bride and apparently just unable to love. His name is Norton. In fear and shame, trying to hide his mistake, he buries the body of Melchiades in a shallow grave. But coyotes dig up the body, and the local authorities, the principalities and powers, they do nothing but bury it in an even deeper grave. Then one night, a man who says he was a friend of Melchiades kidnaps Norton, makes him dig up the body. He forces Norton to journey with him through the wilderness on a descent into Mexico to bury the body of Melchiades once again. And on the journey, Norton is bit by a serpent, and yet saved by these poor Mexican peasants that he had once tormented, and their love burns him like, like fire. Finally, they arrive at the place Melchiades called home, and this friend of Melchiades, the friend of Melchiades, played by Tommy Lee Jones, makes Norton sit in Melchiades' chair and drink from Melchiades' cup and rebuild Melchiades' little house that he and his family had once lived in, and then he has him bury the body of Melchiades with his, with his bare hands, and all the while Norton just refuses to, to break. Then the friend of Melchiades forces Norton to kneel in front of a tree, places a picture of Melchiades and his family on that tree. <laughs> What? Ask for forgiveness. Ask for forgiveness right now. I'll go to hell right now. I don't believe in hell. I'm sorry. I swear to God, I'm sorry. I swear to God, I swear to God, I did not mean to kill him. That was a mistake. I didn't want it to happen. <laughs> that hurt me. I, I regret it every single day. <laughs> Forgive me. Forgive me. Melchiades. 
for taking your life. Forgive me. <laughs> Norton falls asleep, and in the morning, the friend of Melchiades comes back. You can go now. Where? To your wife. thought that you'd end up killing me. You can keep the horse. So. You can keep the horse. That's freedom. Then he calls him son. I couldn't stop weeping because I realized that we're all Norton. And God our Father is the friend of Melchiades <laughs> and us. We all think he's trying to kill us because he hates us, but he's setting us free from ourselves and the principalities and powers of this world that we might begin to love as we have always been loved. Our inability to love is hell. Our inability to empathize with another keeps each of us alone. It's our lack of faith in grace and our faith in ourselves and our ability to justify ourselves that keeps each of us alone and trapped in outer darkness. Do you understand? Norton was already in hell long before he shot Melchiades, but it was in the depths of hell that he came to believe in mercy for it was in the depths of hell that he came face to face with the horror of his own sin. It was in the depths of hell that he finally looked upon the face of love nailed to the tree, and then the mercy of God, the father of Melchiades, set him free. Jonah was already entangled in the cords of Sheol, to use David's words, long before he jumped the ship bound for Tarshish. But it was in the depths of hell that he came to long for the word of God from whom he had been hiding. It was in the belly of the beast that he cracked and finally looked upon the face of the one whom he had hated in the last and the least of these, the Assyrians, the Judeans, the, 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 the Mexicans, the Republicans, the Democrats. He looked on the face of the one from whom he had always taken life and saw that this one had always given life. And so he cried out, Yeshua! Salvation belongs to the Lord. So what, I'm, what am I saying? What am, what am I saying in all this? I, I'm saying that you and I are Jonah. Both Assyrian and Israelite, 
are Jonah. Both Northern Kingdom and Southern Kingdom are Jonah. Both Republican and Democrat are Jonah. I'm saying that if you voted for Trump and you just cannot comprehend how those morons could vote for Biden, God's calling you. He's calling you to go to San Francisco or at least the house of a friend that voted for Joe Biden and, and then just listen to him. Listen to him and then prophesy to them. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy, Revelation 19. That means the spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. So don't tell him who to vote for. Don't argue about the babysitter. Don't even bring up the principalities and powers of this present darkness. Just share with them your love for Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. And if you voted for Biden, and it's just inconceivable to you that a person could actually vote for Donald J. Trump. I think God is calling you to drive to Dallas or somewhere near there, or at least the house of a friend that voted for Trump and just listen to them. What do I mean by that? I mean sit at their table, drink from their cup, and then share with them your love for Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life, the word of God our Father who is relentless love. You see, I bet they're looking for the very same thing that you're looking for. It's just that you both got suckered. You both got suckered like we all get suckered. We all get suckered into thinking that the judgment of love could be delivered by the babysitter, by human effort and legislation, by the knowledge of love rather than the presence of love, our Lord Jesus, the Messiah. He's the king who couldn't give a flying turd about the White House, but suffered, died, descended into hell, and rose the third day in order that he could sit on the throne in the sanctuary of your soul. The way, the truth, and the life, sitting on the judgment seat in your heart. We all get suckered by the ancient serpent to put our faith in the principalities and powers of this world. Now listen closely. They can be a gift for a time but if you trust them with your soul, you'll end up in Sheol, the belly of the beast, and, well, you can call it hell. In the Revelation, remember that there's a beast from the land and a beast from the sea. Last year, we saw that the beast from the sea was like Rome or maybe Assyria. And the beast from the land was like Israel. Or old Israel, I should say. Old Israel, the, the imitation Christ. The anti-Christ. We see, I think Jonah was already trapped by one beast when God arranged for him to get swallowed by the other beast to learn compassion for the Ninevites and to call out to the one true God for salvation. <laughs> Yeshua. The dragon controls the beast. But you know, God even controls the dragon. I mean, he uses the dragon and his beast to teach you compassion and to place within you his word of love. Our God is all-powerful. So God is calling you. This is what I'm saying. God is calling you, like he called Jonah, to love your neighbor. Shock, shock. Especially if you consider your neighbor to be an, an enemy. He's calling you like he called Jonah to have compassion on them and to prophesy to them his word. If you don't go to them, 
you and our entire nation might just have to descend into the belly of the beast. <laughs> For I fear that we've been worshiping the beast. Giant blue donkey, terrifying red elephant. If we saw them for what they are, we'd be just fine. And in fact, they'd even be a blessing and not a curse. But because we're willing to hate our brothers and sisters for the sake of those beasts, God might just give us up to those beasts to teach us compassion and to give us his very own heart. And that wouldn't be bad. For we would be eventually vomited up onto the dry land. But wouldn't it be better if we just looked into his face right now? Wouldn't it be better if we just let him judge our hearts right now and began to love our neighbors right now? <laughs> and so the walking, talking word of God with a face took bread and broke it. On the night that he was betrayed, he took bread and broke it, saying, this is my body given to you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup, saying, this is the covenant in my blood, shed for the forgiveness of sins. And now you remember who was sitting at the table with him, because the next thing he said is, drink of it. All of you. This is the presence of the word of the Lord. This is his face. Amen. And so, Lord Jesus. Our Father in heaven, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you that salvation belongs to you. And we confess that at times we have thought it belongs to us, or maybe a principality or power of this world. So, Lord God, we lay that at your feet. We thank you that you have conquered and we invite you to fill your temple, which is us, that we might manifest you, your judgment, Father, your body, Lord Jesus, that we might be your temple, Holy Spirit. I thank you that you want us to be a part of what you're doing, which is bringing all of your children home for dinner. Thank you, Lord God, for who you are in Jesus' name. Amen. And now, um, before you go, let me say, we this is kind of the second part of the sermon a couple weeks ago. We talked about the babysitter, and I said it's, it's great to argue about the babysitter. Andrew and I get together a lot and, and do that. It's great to argue about the babysitter. And a few weeks ago, that was a, maybe there's really some benefit that, in that, that the world needed a little bit of your knowledge of good and evil, <laughs> your knowledge of legislation, your knowledge of, of good and bad babysitters. But right now, they need to meet the king. I think our country really needs to meet the king. 
And that happens in an utterly different sort of way. And we're going to talk about that next week. Because you see, he lives inside of you. <laughs> and um, so I guess this is what I'm saying. I don't know how to say this eloquently. And, and it's probably not exactly right. But I don't think God gives a flying turd about who you voted for to fill the office of the president. But he wrapped himself in flesh, suffered and died, descended into hell, and rose on the third day again, all so that you would love your neighbor. So believe the gospel, and you'll become the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.